Swan's Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, unlocking the extrasensory power of your mind. Here with Mr. Douglas. We left off at the end of Chapter 10, so we'll start with the beginning of Chapter 11. All right. Chapter 11's titled Taking the Plunge into Core ESP. Love this opening quote. An eagle does not make up its mind to fly. It plunges into the void and finds itself flying. So here we go, setting up your own experiments. And this is the ultimate idea of what I would at least like everyone to consider participating in, playing with. But I think what, what I'm going to do is basically set up a little situation here where if you all want to, you can remote view a little doodle, I doodle for you to remote view. But let's see, setting up your own experiments. In setting up your own experiments, Ingo says, my first word of advice is to keep it simple. <laughs> do the best I can, Ingo. Materials you'll need, uh, you know, some standard white paper. Be sure it's unlined paper. Great. Plain. No problem. We'll keep it as uh, undistortable as possible. We'll keep it simple. I'll keep the drawing, you know, simple. Selecting a friend to work with. Well, you've got a friend in Mr. Douglas. Know that I am here and fully in support of your psychic ability. Types of objects that should be used. Basically, don't make it complicated. And, uh, you know, we won't be using objects. We'll be using drawings or doodlings. But he says, for example, it's better to start with a single spoon rather than a whole box of silverware. Sure, I get it. Don't add unnecessary complexity. Maintaining silence. Well, we can do that pretty easily. Doing the experiment. The basic picture drawing experiment is simplicity itself. When you feel you're ready, remain alone in one room and ask your friend to place the simple object on a table in another room. Or ask Mr. Douglas to place his drawing in a place where Mr. Douglas places it. Sure. Sit up with a well-lighted table with your paper in front of you. Put the date and time on your paper. Calm yourself. Don't be nervous. Maintaining calmness might not be possible for the first few experiments, we tend to anticipate, get worked up, feel we're going to fail, or feel that we're hot and we'll get the target right away. It might take a few trials to bring about a detached poise of some sort of disinterest. When you can achieve this, the core ESP processes will work their best. And as we discussed in the episode before, it's really not about priming or doing or supercharging any portion of yourself, but more about chilling out, getting out of your own way, and letting that ESP core to do what it do. Ingo goes on, the calming procedure doesn't mean you have to spend a half an hour preparing yourself. Just try to put yourself into a semi-trance. Take a couple of deep breaths, you know, sing a round song in your mind, row, row, row your boat. He says, when all is ready, let your ESP core do the work for you. 
Bear in mind, the ESP information is partly gut feeling, partly intuition, and partly a sort of automatic response that does not actively engage your conscious mental processes. If you find yourself thinking about what the target might be, take a break, start over again. When you draw something, don't start wondering what the drawing might represent because you'll immediately experience a flood of possibilities. That's that waking monkey mind saying, oh, it's a pool. So practically everyone is a little self-conscious at first, a good way of causing them your extraneous emotions and mind chatter to dissipate is to note them down on your paper. Doing this will give you a record of how you feel as you try to activate your ESP core processes or get out of the way of the ESP core activating on its own. If you feel like putting words into your response, do so. After all, some attributes of the target cannot easily be sketched, such as textures or emotional feelings about the target or the overall ambience of the target. Now, ending your attempt. It has been my experience that the core ESP processes work fast, so don't be surprised if you make a quick few brief lines or a small drawing in a very short period of time. The ESP processes work this way. And if you prolong your effort, trying to do better, you probably only will be activating mental processes that will degrade the original psychic information. But he says, after a few experiments, you'll get the feel of it. Now, asking for immediate feedback. When you intuitively feel your drawing has fulfilled itself, put your pen down and ask to see the target. He goes on to say, go ahead and circle with a red pen the points or features of your drawing that correspond to the target or something in it. If the target was a pencil and you drew a straight line, you would want to note that. If the target was a curved vase and you drew a curve or a roundish thing, then you would want to note that you were in the ballpark. Make notes like a spelling test. Get in there and give yourself a thumbs up when you do a good job. And of course, highly recommend you get this book. He says, comparing your drawing to information in this book, it'll be important for you to study your drawings in the light of how they compare with the information in this book. And I did provide just a few pictures in the most recent blog post. But Ingo goes on, the ESP core processes seem to learn from this type of comparison and reinforcement. If you do an intellectual analysis of your attempt, you will find that your picture drawings will gradually improve, sometimes considerably so. Pacing your experiment. Go easy at first, and only gradually build up to the long, hard stuff. There's a natural urge in all of us to want to work hard. Bear in mind that talents and skills accumulate slowly, at some pace governed by our own internal mechanisms. ESP is no different. After a dozen or so experiments, you will find your own pace. So it's basically, it's really simple. Quiet your mind, put yourself in a semi-trance. Know that Mr. Douglas has provided a doodle for you. Remote view, if you wish, this doodle. See what you think. See, <laughs> perceive how you feel when engaging with your ESP core. Write it down. Circle the good parts in red. Ah, nice. Big highlight. Resist the overtraining urge. So in, previously, he wrote about feeling hot and wanting to go again, thinking, you know, you found your groove. But really, it's, uh, you know, you, yes, you did a good job. You were able to get some hits, but you're not a mutant that gets stronger with every pump of iron. You're a badass that's training your psychic ability, and you've got to do it without burning yourself out. So resist the overtraining urge. It's like telling a long-distance runner, Ingo says, that he has just run 100 miles very well. So why not try for another 100? 
No one in their right mind would do that. Your system has expended energy successfully, but it needs to reload. Reload. Even cars need to stop for gas. But apparently, Ingo says, this is done all the time in parapsychology. Don't burn yourself out. Good advice. Chapter 12. And so, yeah, basically, it's not super heavy. It's not difficult. It's not multifaceted or super complex. Put yourself in a semi-trance. Sing yourself a song. Relax. And ask yourself to view, to perceive, the doodle from Mr. Douglas. And this is cool. I'm going to try and do it with my brother. See if he'll, uh, you know, do a little doodle for me and then uh, once a week. I'm going to try, you know, we'll see if we can do it like a once a week kind of a thing. It'll get me back in front of the microphone. And it'll get us psychically connecting. But yeah, I'm going to see if I can do it with my brother or somebody who's going to doodle for me. And then I will doodle for you. And we shall grow in activation and expansion of our ESP core. Right. Chapter 12. Learning from your picture drawings. It is very beneficial to consider that, quote-unquote, the information did not get through rather than conclude that no ESP was present and that you missed the target completely. Not the case. The information may have risen to some degree in those preconscious processes that cope with it, but encountered a barrier. Like me thinking, it's a pool! Basic ESP is no different than any other human talent. This, again, coming from a dude who was like expert at it. Few of us can execute any talent easily at first. The pole vaulter cannot possibly clear the 18-foot mark until his entire system has learned to collaborate with the task. But he will never do it at all if he thinks that it is impossible or that he has no pole vaulting talent. It is only with practice that the various components of his system can come into phase with each other. The same is true for all sports and performing arts as well. Yeah, 100%. You're not going to get up there and cold read your script without ever being exposed to it. Amazingly, yes, your talent will come through, especially if you are practice at cold reading. But you got to know your blocking. You got to explore the script. You got to memorize your lines. Get used to the costume and clothing that they will provide for you. Get used to the space. And yeah, again, all that uh, script work, that getting into the motivation of your character. I mean, there's so much that you've got to do in order to build up to execution. So he makes a good point. It's only with practice that the various components of your system can come into phase with each other. Boop. All right, Ingo goes on. As you gain in practice, you will discover that the psychic information pathway is very soft, if not mellow in feeling, and you will learn which information to trust and work with. You will also begin to get a good idea of just how spontaneous the psychic information can be. It is not a matter of actually focusing on the target material consciously. I'll say it again. It is not a matter of actually focusing on the target material consciously. It is more a function of just spotting the incoming information that is trying to get along up the pathway. Sketch it out simply, even rather quickly. Then compare your drawing to the target material. You will see that at times some information is beginning to get through. You can also note what information is being left out. Observing these facets carefully is what will allow consciousness to learn. It's like, uh, you know, shooting a basketball. 
You're going to shoot it a bajillion times, but each time you shoot it, you're going to be like, okay, I did that that last time and I sucked. Okay, I'm going to do it again. Ooh, all right, I, I shot it and then I sucked a different way, but I sucked a little bit less the first way. Okay, that's learning. In my case, when it came to interacting with people, when we used to do that, pre-COVID, it was, <laughs> I got this joke. Ooh, that joke did not land. Okay, one of two things. Either they didn't get it or I sucked at delivery. Try it again. All right, that person laughed. They have a good sense of humor. May I did a little bit better? Let's change the words around. Nope, don't do that. Go back. Yes, okay. The joke is taking shape. Ingo goes on. If you are slow at getting the whole target, don't be disappointed. Have confidence in those parts of it you do get. Confidence helps to build certainty, and increasing certainty is what will clear the pathway of barriers. Information getting is the key concept that should lie behind your own attempts. Information getting is the key concept. He says, Early on, I made the mistake of thinking that I should be able to actually see the target as with my eyes. I didn't and therefore was disappointed. What I got, however, was information. If you keep trying, eventually you'll be able to see that some information is managing to get past the barriers and that the psychic pathway is starting to get itself into focus. Now he says, aside from no information getting through, there are seven general hurdles that need to be kept in mind. And we will go over them here. One, there will be instances in which you will not get the object at all, or even any part of it. Instead, you'll get other objects surrounding it. Sometimes you'll pick up the thoughts of the person who put it there for you, or sometimes in his pockets or in her purse. Right, so you pick up, uh, surrounding information, information around the information you're looking to get. Number two, often you will not have identified the object, but will have gone on to draw something from your own experience that the object reminds you of. This constitutes a replacement of the psychic information with some information that doesn't belong to it. But the psychic information rose along the pathway to trigger a comparable image in your imagination. Now, that's an interesting kind of, help me, like an alley-oop, pass the baton, psychic center says, yo, imagination, uh, help me out here. Even though it's not correct, it is worth writing down and checking out. It's good to recognize it. And the more you do this, the more you will be able to recognize it internally sooner when it begins to take place. Number three, there will be instances in which you will get a lot of drawings or marks or words which do not make any sense to your consciousness. They will not go together properly to make a recognizable picture drawing, but when you finally see the hidden object, you will be able to recognize how totally appropriate the elements are. He's termed this kind of thing lack of fusion. You've got all the rudiments, but they did not fuse into an appropriate form. At number four, sometimes in your drawing or your writing, if there is any, you may have sketched the object quite well, but have called it something other than what it is. This happens when the conscious processes do not recognize the sketch, but are determined to call it something anyway. It's a pool! Number five. There will be other instances in which only portions are perceived, such as the details, but not the major object, or conversely, the general outline of the object, but not the details. Number six. Often you will get only one part of the object, while the remainder of it is not perceived. Number seven. Other times you will get a good correspondence to the object, but there will be some distortion. Right, these are all just, you know, what's cool is 
These are things that come up repeatedly for everyone, these seven general barriers or obstacles or warping, uh, twisting, or obfuscation of the information coming via the pathway of the psychic core. When one of these hurdles is blocking the pathway, many of you will experience instances of indisputable correspondence between your impressions and whatever the concealed object is. Fascinating. He goes on, I've been able to identify four general categories into which all picture drawings can be grouped. He's termed them according to their correspondence in the ESP learning processes. They are error contributions, associations, lack of fusion, accuracies. And we went over the seven general barriers that seem to bubble up in these four categories. Okay. Ingo goes on, error contribution. Contrary to the usual approach, which concentrates only on accuracy, error contributions are actually more important to the learning process. Error contributions are barriers in the ESP pathway that must be identified. We learn best from our mistakes. You correct toward greater accuracy and performance by locating and resolving or disciplining the areas of error, debugging the system. Four major error contributions along the ESP pathway. One, some other thoughts that have nothing to do with the target or experiment. Two, no contact or correspondence at all. Three, illusion or imagination. Four, false guesses or just guessing, which, yeah, can happen. And maybe I'll put some of these pictures here. He's got a really cool one. This is a great example of some information getting through, but not all information getting through. The target was a very simple drawing of a tennis ball. The response, quite honestly, looks like a ball in motion. It could also be a, a, a comet uh, or asteroid or something, but it looks like a tennis ball that was just hit with a wicked spin serve. Uh, really cool. And you can see like, oh, okay, ball, ball in motion. I get it. There is, uh, there's information coming through there uh, accurately to some degree. Yeah, some really cool illustrations. So, all right, I'll take a few more pictures and put them on for you. I highlighted this part. But there seems to be a mental function in the whole ESP process that doubts. Ah, yes. It takes a perfectly valid response and converts it into one that is purely imaginary, second-guessing oneself. Ooh, and so, okay, Russell Targ, SRI, right? Ingo worked with this dude. He's created a free remote viewing app. And it's much more simple than uh, even this simple exercise. It, 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 but it's cool. I use it all the time. Um, you get 24 chances. There are four colored squares on the screen. And you're supposed to remote view uh, behind the, one of the four colored squares where the picture is. You're basically supposed to use your psychic ability to tap the right square to then reveal the picture and you get a little buzz and a ding and a picture to show you you did it right so that, you know immediate feedback kind of situation and i have increased uh, a couple of times getting some really high scores and it's a fun little scoring mechanism is you know some uh, uh psychic ability present uh would be good in vegas oracle you know that's really i i like it a lot i think it's a, a great thing so um let me go and get that. Hold on one second. But Russell Targ is the dude who made this. I'm going to go find out what it's called. Hold on one second. Okay, it's called ESP Trainer. And I just used it, and it's pretty cool. I have a tendency to get frustrated and go, and just tap, 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 tap. You can do that. 
but putting yourself in the right-hand space, taking a few breaths, relaxing, and just asking yourself, where's the picture? Works really well for me. So definitely recommend ESP Trainer as another fun way to cultivate your ESP core. And again, made by Russell Targ, the dude who worked with Ingo Swan, figure all this good stuff out. Just another way to stretch the edges of our minds. And Ingo goes on. When you evaluate your own picture drawings, circle in red the information in the response that is correct or applicable to the target, and in green label the imaginative overlays. Really get into that color coding. The entire ESP core system learns this way. Soon your responses will have more red circled information in them than green notes signifying imagination. As your red begins to predominate, you will gain in confidence. Yes. All right, so associations here. Next up, he's identified four major types of associations. One, not the object itself, but things associated with it, or in some cases, things that might be expected in association with it. Two, associations of feelings. Three, something the object or location reminds you of. Four, an image or something similar to the object. You know, close, but not precisely what the image is. Still, though, if you're getting close, like some of these, the target was a rudimentary doodle of a cat, and uh, the response was a pretty particularly doodled face of a cat, which, you know, I would argue is really close. If not, you know, a pretty good hit. Okay. Lack of fusion. Lack of fusion is one of the more important concepts that needs to be understood. It means that the components of the target are being perceived but that they won't go together in a form that's understandable as an image or concept. The picture drawing emerges as bits and pieces, but will not evolve into a distinct image. The subject usually experiences some kind of stress or confusion when this happens, and can become so irritated that the whole ESP core collapses as a result. Lack of fusion frequently occurs without imagination or associations poking into the response. Lack of fusion shows that the ESP core is trying to cope with the information on its own without assistance, which is a step in the right direction. It's not asking your imagination, be like, yo, hook me up, imagination, I can't get with this. It's so, here you go, this is what I'm getting. I don't know what it is, but there you go. There are at least four variations on lack of fusion. One, all parts are correctly perceived, but will not connect to form a whole. Two, some parts are fused, others are not. Three. Fusion is only approximate. I would say that's still pretty good. Four, parts are incorrectly fused. All parts are there, but put together in such a way as to falsely create another image. I think of the movie The Thing and how The Thing, you know, eventually tries but fails to create what it wants to be when it's lit with fire and it turns into a pile of goop. Great movie, though. I definitely recommend The Thing. Lots of really cool pictures. So, I mean amazing amazing remote view we have we all have this ability holy moly holy moly and it's just it's going to be exciting to kind of play around with i will keep it simple though some of these things are pretty complex yeah really the back end of this book is very much examples to kind of engender a familiarity with the process for us very cool all right chapter 13 the reality behind picture drawings And from the highlighted bits, Ingo says, 
shape-form recognition normally takes place automatically, like we were talking about last episode. That is to say, in those parts of us that are below consciousness. If consciousness had to deliberately analyze anew every shape and form it encountered, life would be a grueling task indeed. Shape-form recognition has become automatic and spontaneous. It is at this same non-conscious, automatic, and spontaneous level that psychic picture drawings are encountered. We can put together the following scenario. The deeper self is connected into the vast reaches of the psychic mode. The psychic nucleus selects information from that reality, and the ESP core begins to process it and give it immediate shape and form. This immediate shape and form pops out into a picto-language that is universal in all its characteristics. It's only at a second stage of interpretation that language components are introduced and then in a language of an individual. So yeah, you know, the, the thought before the words. In 1973, Ingo goes on, when I was trying to figure out just what picture drawings were, I began a search in literature outside the parapsychological framework. Rudolf Arnheim's well-known book, Art and Visual Perception, was particularly significant, especially in Chapter 4, entitled Growth. And he's got the quote here. Rudolf says, From the outset, I have insisted that we cannot hope to understand the nature of visual representation if we try to derive it directly from optical projections of the physical objects that constitute our world. Artistic pictures and sculptures of any style possess properties that cannot be explained as mere modifications of the perceptual raw material received through the senses. If we assume that the point of departure for visual experience was the optical projection supplied by the lenses of the eyes, we would expect that the earliest attempts at imagery would cleave most closely to those projections. Any deviation from that model, we would expect, would be a later development reserved for the freedom of mature sophistication. But instead, the opposite is true. The early drawings of children show neither the predicted conformity to realistic appearance, nor the expected spatial projections. You got an artist here from way back when saying, hey, our primary uh, inspiration is not coming from what we see primarily. It's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from somewhere else. Another book, Drawing on the Artist Within by Betty Edwards, author of Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, is quoted by Ingo saying, Complexity aside, I am going to forge ahead and assume that a nonverbal visual language of drawing exists as a possible parallel to verbal language. Even though I cannot at this point spell it out, a language of drawing, of course, is not the only possible parallel language. There exists obviously many nonverbal languages. The language of sound, music, the language of movement, dance, or sports, of abstract symbolic thought, mathematics, and science, of color, painting, of film, as Orwell suggested, and the language of nature itself, the genetic code, for example. Each of these could perhaps serve equally well for making thought visible. I love that quote. To have the mind consider music as a language, movement as a language, Mathematics and science as a language, painting, film, like, oh, yeah, we communicate non-verbally in all of these. Because you know the difference in communication when somebody is looking at you and they are approaching you 
open and sultry and the eyes are kind of like the bedroom eyes are kind of like, ooh, I like what I'm looking at, but I don't want to be like, oh, my God, I want to, I want to draw you close. And you know the difference uh, in comparison to when someone is looking at you like, bong, bug eyes, like, what the, uh, you got something on your nose. Is it your nose? Oh, they are not interested in being flirtatious with you. They are interested in what the hell is on your nose. Like my experience throughout middle school. Right. Okay, let's get back to it. Ingo goes on. Later in her book, Edwards introduces the concept, it thinks. She's referring to that interior something beneath or beyond our consciousness that itself is busy constructing concepts that are later pushed up into our consciousness in a relatively completed form. So here we got people in the art world saying the same stuff that the psychics and mystics have been saying in the psychic and mystic world, that there is a nonverbal language that is seemingly universal, an interior something beyond or beneath consciousness that is doing its own thing, busy with itself, and later bubbles that up to consciousness in a relatively complete form. Yeah. And moving right along, Ingo brings up another book written by N. Catherine Hales, The Cosmic Web, uh, who has identified the concept so early that he can't resist quoting it. Perhaps the most essential to the field concept is the notion that things are interconnected. The most rigorous formulations of this idea are found in modern physics, in marked contrast to the atomistic Newtonism idea of reality in which physical objects are discrete and events are capable of occurring independently of one another and the observer, a field view of reality pictures objects, events, and observers as belonging inextricably to the same field. The disposition of each in this view is influenced sometimes dramatically, sometimes subtly, but in every instance by the disposition of the others. Hell yes. Ingo continues, there are many concrete examples of this interconnectedness. Scientists now know that flocking birds in flight don't simply follow a leader, as once was thought. When the flock turns, it turns as a flock, as if the flock itself is an interconnected organism. The growth rate of bacteria can be affected by the mental intention of a group of people concentrating on them. Many earlier experiments testing the efficacy of prayer showed positive results. It's also been shown that plants generally grow better in musical environments that are harmonious. Rock music causes many plants to wilt or die. I'd like to put that to a test. There's some good rock music out there. Chimona. But all examples like these have one thing in common. The fact that the whole experiment is an information exchange environment at levels beneath our conscious awareness. And the fact that consciously held mental attitudes can feed back into the information exchange system and influence it in turn. This is exactly analogous to ESP. All this suggests that real communion between people takes place at the extrasensory level. If this is so, then the closer one is connected to one's own ESP core and psychic nucleus, the more interconnected that person is going to be with the greater realities that lie beneath conscious individuation. Mm. Mm -mm -mm -mm. All right, now, last chapter, chapter 14, ESP and the future. It was difficult for me not to highlight this entire chapter. Because, again, this was uh, 1970... Well, here it looks like copyright 1991. Trying to find if that's the earliest. Anyway, yeah, all this stuff was taking place in the 70s. And here he talks about in chapter 14, ESP and the future.
And this is really exciting. I, it's got, I guess it's got to be 91, 92, because he, he talks about the USSR and Cold War and it ending. So yeah, okay. All right, early 90s is when this book all came out, but he was busy living his psychic life throughout the 70s and 80s. All right, chapter 14, ESP and the future. The most important thing to realize, Ingo says, about ESP and other psychic faculties is that we do possess them, that they are inherent in our species, which we describe as thinking, sensitive, and creative, possessing many different degrees of awareness. Extrasensory capabilities have been recorded from ancient times through today, a record which suggests two things, that it has been rather impractical of us not to make a more concerted effort to understand our psychic nature, and that we may never really understand some of the greater mysteries of ourselves until we understand our psychic capabilities as natural attributes of our species. Scooting on, we're talking about how this was being disregarded completely. It's like, oh, you're crazy if you think it's psychic. But in 1969, American intelligence analysts began learning, much to their initial disbelief, that researchers in the Soviet Union had become deeply involved in understanding ESP and its potential applications. Thus, for the first time in psychical history, governments were expressing more than just a passing incredulous interest in the potential applications of ESP. I mean, you could make the argument that uh, the Nazi government was deeply involved in exploring similar ideas and practices. They were doing it the old school way, going to Tibet and with the Thule Society. That's a whole other episode if we ever want to get into that. but. So he says it was 69 when the U.S. learned about the USSR's uh, deep interest and involvement in studying uh, extrasensory perception that got the U.S. into it. He goes on, could trained Soviet psychics actually intrude into the mind of the president, for example, and psychically implant suggestions beneficial to the Soviets? Mm -hmm. This was a big worry, and by the mid-1970s, many governments had established official but quite secret psychic working groups including the United States, the British, and the French, and to increase the worry, the still ardent communist Chinese, too. Wow. And there is a book, uh, Chinese Super Psychics, which is like $500. Difficult to find, uh, but apparently it, it goes deep into China's uh, study uh, uh, and um, working with psychic power cultivation. Ingo says, but the greater yield of the Soviet-USA psychic gap flap was at least twofold. So yeah, okay. 70s and 80s happened, we studied it, the media went to town with it, freaking us out. Cold War ended, and it seemed like this got quiet. But, he says, there were two massive benefits. First, never again can psychic matters be completely disrespected or denigrated, as was the case before 1969. Second, there remain the reasons why the Soviets became interested in psychic potentials in the first place, reasons which caused them to establish at least nine major psychic research centers. Wow! Albeit not under the name of psychic research, but as psychotronics, psychoenergetics, biocommunications, and most significantly, electromagnetic bioinformation. As early as 1924, Soviet researchers discovered and began to acknowledge something which Western scientists elected to disregard, that psychic functioning is indigenous and natural in the human species. And if this is so, then there must be bio-internal processes which govern that functioning, processes which could be developed and enhanced. The Soviets early made the correct strategic guess by assuming that such 
functions were probably bioelectromagnetic in nature. By 1985, the important facts of bioelectromagnetism began to be understood in the West, and it was soon accepted that the human bioorganism not only possesses a bioelectromagnetic nature, but is structurally built upon one. The implications of human bioelectromagnetism are particularly awesome. For example, increasing understanding of our bioelectromagnetic nature will completely revise medicine, healing, and psychology. Basically, we as biological organisms are built out of genetic materials which create our skeletons, muscles, nerves, organs, skin, and give us our individual characteristics. The whole of this remarkable bioconstruction depends for its running upon chemical functions, which are quite complex. It has been known for quite some time that our bodies also possessed an electric nature, but that nature was thought to be of minimal importance. Greater study of this electrical nature has led to the increasing understanding that bioelectromagnetism is more important than was thought, and some of these advances have revealed that beneath all our other physical attributes exists a profound electromagnetic plan or blueprint which guides and positions every cell and molecule in our body. Uh, these discoveries can be found in Harold Saxton Burr's 1972 book entitled Blueprint for Immortality, The Electric Patterns of Life. Cool. One of the important implications of all this is readily understood. It's known that if our electromagnetic blueprint is damaged, so then must be the associated physical aspects of our bodies. The possibilities of correcting the damaged bioelectromagnetic component, which will result in a more healthy rebalancing of the affected physical parts, are mind-boggling. As anyone familiar with acupuncture well knows, the needles pushed into the acupuncture points reorient and correct the hung-up electromagnetic channels, allowing for cures of physical ailments. Now, I'm not a doctor, and of course, you got to consult yours and take your life and your responsibility into your own hands. You can do it, but there's nothing stopping you in exploring this information with me and on your own. In addition, Ingo goes on, the discovery of the importance of bio-EM or bioelectromagnetism has enormous implications with regard to the way we might understand psychic potentials. The nature of electromagnetism is best understood by the average man or woman as the waves and frequencies which carry information, making radio and TV possible. Anything which is electromagnetic also is capable of receiving and sending information across distances, and most importantly, by virtue of being essentially electromagnetic, is joined to the electromagnetic universe at large. You're connected already. It is true that these means and processes are not yet understood, but the facts relevant to psychic potentials are quite clear. If the human is built upon bioelectromagnetic structures, then the human also must be potentially psychic, and is probably psychic at levels beneath the individual's awake and intellectual forms of consciousness. We're all psychic. I mean, the whole chapter is, is basically him saying, yo, listen, it is too far gone to refute now. We're all psychic. It's based on bioelectromagnetic systems that are super subtle in our bodies, but these systems can be cultivated and trained and built up to the point where we all become psychic warriors, which probably aren't. <laughs> but it is cool to think about. Ingo goes on. In other words, no reason for the existence of psychic capabilities could be found in biomedical studies alone or in psychological ones. So, the possibility of psychic capabilities as being real was rejected in the West. 
bioelectromagnetic advances bring clearly into focus the reason why psychic capabilities have to be accepted. And as we progress into the future, no serious researcher of bioelectromagnetism will be able to avoid the issue of psychic capabilities. Thus, the pro-psychic, anti-psychic deadlock is now broken and can never be deadlocked unless we also deny our electromagnetic nature. And we've got plenty of examples throughout history to show us that we've been tapping into this, you know, naturally, normally. Ingo states, for example, countless psychics through the ages have claimed that the human body is surrounded by an aura, and many, including children, not only can see it, but can describe in detail the auras, colors, and shapes. Yet the prevailing opinion in our modern Western sciences held that the aura did not exist, and so, of course, psychics could not see it. However, it is now completely understood that the human body, as a bioelectromagnetic dynamic engine, does possess an aura, which is called a biofield, in keeping with the new science of bioelectromagnetism. All forms of electromagnetism are composed of fields, the parameters of the human biofield extending on average some three feet beyond the surface of the skin, and now being measured by magnetic instruments. The age-old sightings of the aura biofield are thus vindicated, and the only question which remains is how these sightings can occur. The human eye is probably not the complete source of these sightings, since the eye registers only that narrow band of frequencies and wavelengths in the electromagnetic spectrum called the light band. A great pro-psychic lesson is to be learned from this one issue alone. There is now no doubt at all that the biofield exists, nor that it can't be measured by delicate magnetic devices. It can be measured by delicate magnetic devices. In other words, and to be quite clear here, progressing science is now equipped to measure a bioelectromagnetic phenomenon. The biofield and this biofield is something which psychics have said they could see all along, although traditionally referring to it as the aura. The implications of this connection are enormous. If many people can see auras or biofields, then it must be assumed that the human organism possesses electromagnetic receptors of some kind, which enable the seeing to take place. These receptors must also somehow enable the individual to engage in sightings of targets beyond the biofield and hidden out of sight, of eyeball vision of them. Psychic perceptions can no longer be discredited at all. The only question now remaining is how they work. And that's what we're here to play around with. I mean, that basically ends the book there, right there. He basically, he, the very, very end, he goes, yo, ESP and other psychic faculties are going to increasingly constitute a central focus in the years to come. And you got to wonder, it's 2021 now, we're almost in 2022. We don't really talk about this this much. If our governments knew about this in the 70s and 80s, even further back in other countries, and here you got the pro man, right? Ingo Swan himself saying it's real. We all have it. We can all tap into it and get better at it. And here's a basic way to do it. What then is the reason for the radio silence from our levels of officialdom? You got to wonder, but I'm not going to wonder too hard about that because here we are right now cultivating it ourselves. Hey, Ingo Swan's pretty impressive. I'm a fan. I might do another one of his books. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But keep in mind, the game is on. I'm going to doodle something and uh, reach out to me via Twitter if you like. I am uh, at Mr. Douglas, M-I-S-T-3-R-D-O-U-G-L-A-S. 
uh, and check it out. You know, let me know what you viewed and I will send you a DM back letting you know. I'll, I'll just basically take a picture of it and send it to you so you can get that immediate feedback. But I think this will be fun. We're going to do it. Let's get better at engaging with our psychic core and see where this can take us. Now, I'm toying with the idea of going over a chaos magic grimoire that was put together by Arch Traitor Blue Fluke, a public domain, very awesomely illustrated and put together, very accessible to uh, break down the ideas of what chaos magic is. Basically, it's just yet another avenue to tap into that center of ourselves that is connected with the all, so we all can get better at being connected and living lives that we want to live in ways that we want to live them freely and without injury to others. I'm thinking about doing that, but I might do another Ingo book because this is a fantastic way to build a base layer of confidence and experience engaging something that we have no conscious engagement with in uh, popular culture. This would be really cool. I don't know. Let me know what you think. And, uh, you know, we'll move onward and upward together. But hey, thank you for hanging. It's great that we are here. Happy holiday time. Let's make the most of the end of 2021 here and enjoy ourselves and enjoy opening ourselves up to greater and greater possibilities and probabilities of ourselves being actualized the very way we want to be. Great to have you along the journey. I'll catch you on the next one.